This is Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open-plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. Welcome to Linux In-Laws, Season 2, Episode 1. Martin, how are things? Oh, things are not bad, not bad. What about yourself? So, can't complain, Martin. So, we have survived season one. That means we're in season two already. Jesus, time flies, doesn't it? But what do you mean by already? It's been quite a long season, <laughs> I think. Well, <laughs> 11 episodes, if I recall correctly, right? It's uh, Most seasons are more like uh, three months rather than three years. But, uh, but you okay. see, Martin, we, we are special, as you probably we are, know we are, by yes. now. Indeed. Um, yeah, so season two, eh? There we go. So that's another 1900 episodes down the drain, and then another 99 to come. Maybe even because more. we ran out of our, our double digits <laughs> that we chased. Yes. <laughs> This is also known as the Linux in-laws Y2K problem, or something <laughs> like this. But this is not about Y2K or similar, pro or similar issues, but rather about something very important because now we have as a special guest. All of, of course, all of our guests are special, but this is a special, especially one. We have the Document Foundation tonight on the podcast. Martin, <laughs> say something. Are you just resting in awe? Sorry, I thought you were introducing our guests. No, 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 no. I thought you were kind of saying, wow, how did you manage that, Chris? The Document, the Document Foundation themselves, how did you do that? I mean, but If you why don't, don't, why don't, you, that, tell, why don't you tell the listeners? <laughs> you seem to be dying to tell them. So. <laughs> so without further ado, I would like to introduce Florian Effenberger and Mike Saunders. You probably know these people if you haven't been living under a rock from previous endeavors like Linux Voice, but I reckon both Florian and Mike will, as part of the introduction, will shed a little bit of light on their history. So without further ado, why don't you start, Florian? Yes, very much uh, pleased to, to be here. Thanks a lot for the invite. And it's a very good sign if there's a season two or something. So uh, very happy to, to open that season. <laughs> so my name is Florian. Um, as you said, um, I'm here for the Document Foundation together with my fellow colleague, Mike Saunders. And um, I think I'm in, in that uh, open source area for... It's 19 years now, if I'm not mistaken. So started sh shortly after school for me and I looked into various projects. And at some point uh, back then, I um, jumped into OpenOverseOrg and completely unexpected, took over some roles and, and volunteered and had the great honor to be a part of um, the Document Foundation when it was incorporated. So I was a founding member. 
uh, I co-wrote the statutes that was in the first board. So a long time has passed since then lots of things happened. And uh, these days I work as the executive director together with a fantastic team of at the moment 14 people around the world and a wonderful community. And yeah, what, what we do is basically free office software, but what's behind it is, is a lot more. Uh, there's a worldwide community. You get to know a lot of people. You get invited to exciting podcasts. And I'm very happy to share a few things. And actually, you mentioned Linux Voice. I got to know Mike Saunders exactly through that. So uh, as we say, you always meet twice in life, and mostly it's it's really pleasant. So pleased to be here. Mike, over to you. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, Florian mentioned a couple of things, but of course, most people know me as the um, lead developer and senior strategic officer at MicOS, um, my amazing assembly language operating system uh, that, that you've all used. Um, before the questions pile in, we're not working on a LibreOffice port to MicOS just yet. That's a bit uh, difficult. With the, Mike, sorry for yeah. interrupting, but this MicOS thing has been going on for, for only a short while, last, like the last 30 years, right? It's not that long. Um, there is a blog post somewhere, I think, on the Linux format blog when I managed to get the BIOS to print something and I joked that I'm building my own operating system. And then it actually happens. So in a way, I'm like Linus Torvalds, just completely nowhere near as competent or talented. So, um, But it was worth a try. Anyway, it's been fun. And of course, Linux Voice uh, magazine and podcast and Tux Radar and a bunch of other podcasts and people leaving comments saying I sound like John Lennon which I always found funny anyway, but you can say you've had a John Lennon sound alike on your podcast. And yeah, now I work <clears throat> for the Document Foundation, as Florian mentioned, doing um, work with the community, marketing, outreach, bringing people into the into the LibreOffice community, um, helping them to do cool things and overall having a nice, fun time. So good can, to be here. Can, yeah, can we mention the magazine? Where you all met initially and what happens afterwards. Can, can, can we talk about this or you don't want to do this? Talk about anything, yeah. I'm, um... <laughs> well, you, well you, you met, well, not, not Florian, but, but, the, but, but the gang behind Linux was actually all met at Linux Format, didn't they? Or uh, did you? Yeah, we were just coincidentally working on Linux Format um, magazine, yeah. And then um, we all went our own separate ways and then decided to start another magazine. Um, that's how Linux Voice got got born, and um, yeah, we managed to keep it going for a few years. We were donating profits to free software projects. Um, the magazine world is super, super competitive, um, and I mean, this was um, six years ago, seven years ago. But uh, I know now from speaking to publishers that Linux magazines, free software magazines, it's a really tough, tough world out there to get space on newsstands. The printing costs are high and everything. But yeah, Linux Voice was was a good time. And um, yeah, we, we interviewed some cool people for Linux Voice. We spoke to um, Leonard Puttering of System D fame and uh, Larry Wall of Pearl. And of course, this um, Florian Effenberger, who just happens to be in the call as well. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's probably fair to say that both the magazine and the, the podcast itself uh, were highly influential when Martin and myself created something called Linux In-Laws plus some other podcasts, but um, given the fact that, well, at least I've been following uh, the Motley crew <laughs> for quite some time, it was a, it was a very interesting time. And I and I, I think I was actually part of the initial crowdfunding for the magazine. Ooh. But yeah, 
but they, but yeah. I think that's more than what forty or fifty years ago. I can't even remember. It, it was all black and white back then. Yeah, yes. I, we we made the magazine on the ZX Spectrum, forty eight K with the keyboard. <laughs> no, actually, cool. when did you print the first issue? That was 2013, 2014, something like this? 2013, I can't yes. even remember. Yes, something yeah. like that, okay. A- April 2013, yeah, after we did the crowdfunding and that succeeded, we then actually had to do a lot of work as well. It was funny because we, we crowdfunded, I think, £127,000 to get the magazine started. Wow. Yep. Um, the original goal was £90,000 when we calculated everything that we need. And then we were mm. like, okay. Right, we did it. That's cool. But now we actually need to make a magazine. And we were all computer geeks and computer journalists, so that was fine. But then suddenly we thought, right, oh, now we need to get printers and distributions. So we we met a few companies to get this sorted out, and we turned up in like you know uh, ripped jeans and with stickers all over our laptops. And the, these guys from these publishing companies were like turning up in suits and you know looking to strike a deal. And then they saw us like unshaven geeks <laughs> with a bunch of money and uh, dreams of uh, doing a Linux magazine. Um, and yeah, it worked out in the end. So, so what happened? I mean, just to kind of uh, stay on this topic for a split second, whatever happened to Ben and the other guy was called, not Gregory, but... Uh, yeah, uh, Andrew Gregory, actually. Yes, yeah. sorry, yes, exactly. What happened to Andrew and Ben? Uh, Andrew and Ben are working for um, a working together on a magazine. Um, called... Are you joking? No, no. It's, are you serious? Um, okay. Wow. Yeah, they, it's called. Um, we'll have to add it to the podcast notes. Um, oh, by all means. Yeah, let, let's add to the notes. It's about like um, making stuff, like makerspace, hackerspace type of things, building projects, okay. not just software, but also hardware, robots, and stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're still um, uh, in those fields. Because I, I moved away to, to live in southern Germany, so I'm not physically in the same country uh, anymore. But um, maybe one day we can do a, a, a catch-up episode and have, instead of fines of the fortnight, have fines of the last um, eight years or something like that. So Martin, Martin, take note. We must, get these on the, we must get them on the podcast. That sounds interesting. Do you know where they're based these days? Mm, I think Andrew's somewhere up in northern England. Um, okay. and ben is probably somewhere in southern England, and, and that's about. It's pretty broad, okay. isn't it? But I don't want to dox them anyway. So <laughs> I, I reckon once Ockham kicks back in again, I reckon it's only, it only takes a plane trip to wherever Ockham takes place, and they would all be there, I suppose. Could be, yeah, but. Maybe you could ask them if they want to come and um, join you guys on this podcast at some point. That exactly. So, Martin, let's let's take well, a note to stalk them. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then basically bring them on. But this is not about Linux Voice or, or any other history thing with regards to print magazines. So, for these two people in the audience who do not know what the Document Foundation is, I mean, Florent already hinted at, at some of the history, but maybe now is the time to, to dive a little bit more into more detail on the background and especially where the TDF comes from and why it was found in the first place. Right. So it's, uh, uh, Mike, I will start and then uh, feel free to, to, to join. So um, it, it's been indeed um, a long road, a long way that we, we've come. Um, so it started back then in the, in the open office org times, um, the, the project that I got engaged in in the beginning. And um, we, lots of, of friends and colleagues from that time are still with us, um, made lots of friends for life, and many 
people got their first contact to an open source project and to a worldwide community by being active in the project and things developed and then um, I think in 2005, 2006, we set up an association in Germany and others did similar in other countries um, because of the, well, let's say legal requirements. We are all volunteers, we're just a group of private people uh, working on the project, but then we started to go to trade shows. It was still a big thing back then. Times have changed, but you know you need to sign contracts. You need to rent some some servers online. So just for for legal needs or practical needs, people started to set up local associations. And then um, there was the um, Sun uh, Microsystems was the sponsor of the project. So a lot of stuff happened on the infrastructure. Actually, there were lots of developers hired. Sorry, and, sorry, just a bit, so, sorry to interrupt, but maybe we should actually start way before that, like where does stuff has come from and what happened along the way and why did you decide to fork LibreOffice and then to set up the TDF? Maybe I think that's a good starting point in terms of like whatever happened in the in the dark ages, like the 90s, when a company in Hamburg decided to program an office suite. That was way before my time. So indeed, you're right. The, the origins of that is the star office that, that originates in or near Hamburg. I, I think it started near Hamburg and then they moved uh, into Hamburg. It was the, the, the star office um, that then uh, was uh, in the end uh, open source. It was in, I think, July 2000 as the Open Office Org project. Um, and uh, if you look into that announcement, there were already hints that an Open Office Org Foundation, as it was called, um, was on the radar. So the, the times before the Open Office Org project, I can't tell you that much actually, but indeed the origins were the 90s or even the late 80s. I'm, I'm not sure if that was, was Star Office, uh, so Star Writer, Star Office, um, that uh, then was, was bought by, by some microsystems, was then open sourced, uh, folded into the Open Office Org project indeed. So we are, we're closing a bit the, the, the circle here by having the foundation in the end again in Germany where the project original originally was created and um as said we uh, we were working together in uh, as open office org and then things changed things developed we grew and there was this uh, desire from the beginning to have the own entity that was still in the original press uh, release from 2000 that there would be a um, open office org foundation uh, set up and that for one reason or the other i couldn't even tell you the details never came to life and then eventually when Sun itself was bought by Oracle, things were a bit unclear. So they, of course there was a change uh, in, the, in the in the project ownership. And let's say there was a bit of, of growing at least uncertainty, if not unhappiness. And then various people who were active, whom we knew from our work from the uh, from the past years, were sticking their heads together and looking into that original idea to set up a foundation, something independent, like many other projects do. I mean, Mozilla has a foundation, Wikimedia has a foundation, and many others have similar independent entities. So we looked into into that idea and said, let's, let's set up some sort of entity. The idea was to have a foundation, to have an, an independent or have, have an own governance for the project because it has grown in size. It had grown uh, in, in contributions, grown in importance. So it just sounded logical to have something independent that is vendor independent, independent from one single sponsor. That was the very basic idea behind that. And 
Um, then, I mean, lots of things happened. Uh, I don't know how, how much you want to go into detail, but essentially we were researching various options, where to set it up, how the governance could look like, statutes, legal bits and pieces, and so on. Um, the interesting part before you mentioned the, uh, the crowdfunding for Linux Voice, if I get it right, and that reminds me a lot how we set up the Document Foundation in the beginning, because we had the same problem, so to speak. We had an idea, we had statutes, we had people who could do something, but we needed money, the, the capital stock for the foundation. And we got that also in a, in a public fundraiser. We basically asked the public, well, we need 50,000 euro to set this up. We want to have it in Germany. It's, it's a stable setup. It's a, a, a very known setup. We want to avoid the mistakes from the past. We want to have a strong enforceable rules and not you know, be subject to to um, guidelines that are in the end not enforceable. Therefore, we want a foundation. But the ticket, so to speak, to have that is is like a, a 50k in capital stock. We did a fundraiser. We planned in about a month, and it took us, I think, eight or nine days to get those 50k. That was a remarkable begin of the Document Foundation. And then, with lots of steps in between, obviously, we we set it up and. Um, then it was incorporated in, in February 2012. So the whole process was started in around summer 2010. And the LibreOffice project was announced in September 2010. And the foundation then eventually incorporated in February 2012. So you've been around for, for quite some time as a, as a foundation. Has, has much changed since, since the original 2012 beginnings? Yes, of course, we've grown a lot. So we started um, without employees at the foundation directly. These days we are 14 people, so that has grown. Um, the, the challenges, of course, have grown in the early days. You were busy with bootstrapping, like you had your your statutes, then you, you start with all the burdens that you have as a legal entity that we didn't have before with the, with the OpenOffice.org project, obviously, um, because that was less and more all handled by by Sun and in the end by Oracle. Um, so we had all those those burdens, like, you know, your own hosting, uh, your bookkeeping, your accounting, um, your trademark registration, all those bits and pieces. Um, some essential questions. Some stuff by the sound of it. <laughs> uh, it's the essential bootstrapping, absolutely. I mean, this is, if you don't have a lot of people you can pay to do that, you, have, you must do it yourself. And yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's the other cost. And of course, a lot of, of technical bits and pieces that uh, took place, like a lot of optimization in the code. Uh, I remember people telling me we were finally removing those German comments from the source code because nobody could understand them. So that was one of the first projects. So there were lots of people working on, on a ton of things in parallel, um, everybody in, in their field to make something happen. And that's the spirit we, we still have up these days. Interesting. But maybe now's the time to, to go even a little bit back further. If I recall correctly, Sun ended up through some shady deal at a megacorp run by good old Larry called Oracle. Uh, needless to say, with that acquisition, a ton of open source software and open office among them. I think it was called open office then, right? It wasn't star office anymore. It was, it was already open office. So if I remember correctly, the, 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 the open source project was called openoffice.org and at Apache later it's just Apache OpenOffice without the .org. The, and I think there was the commercial product of StarOffice and I'm not sure if that was rebranded under, under Oracle. So StarOffice from my memory was the, the commercially sold version. Then you had the OpenOffice or project and the latter one then folded into Apache OpenOffice. 
Exactly, but but Oracle being a corporation, and this is my take on the situation, probably run by accountants, and you see this happening all over the place. Basically, when you take a very close look at certain open sources or, or of certain open source projects at Oracle, basically fell by the wayside. And probably my sequel is that is that exception that proves that rule. Uh, but I think. At some stage, the IPs were handed over, as in the intellectual properties were handed over to the Apache Software Foundation, if I'm completely mistaken, right? That happened when? 2010, 2012, 2013, something like this? Maybe even before so, that. I don't remember exactly if that was completely handed over or licensed, so that the, the legal details, I don't know, but basically they, they can use the trademark and, I mean, the, the domain name, for example. If my memory serves me well, that happened around 2011. So I. I think that was before we were legally set up, so around 2011, 2012 that uh, that took place. Okay. And speaking of, of legal stuff, when you take a close look at LibreOffice, this is licensed under an. It's not an. It's not, it's Mozilla license, right? It's not the. It's not the Apache license anymore. It's it's dual license, if I'm not mistaken. Ah, okay. So the the uh, I think the MPL and the LGPL. Uh, for the, the exact details, I need to look in our boilerplate as well. Mm. But I think it's it's a dual license that that we it have. is. It is, yeah, yeah. MPL and um, LGPL. And of course, these being copyleft licenses, that would create some some havoc, I reckon, if if because essentially these these two licenses are, are not exactly compatible because the ASF is a is a permissive license, whereas the MGPL, uh, sorry, MPL, and, and of course the lesser GNU public license are copyleft licenses. Uh, bad teaser, if you really want to get asleep, people, there's a special episode on public and open source software licenses back in the uh, back in the back catalog. So feel free to look it up. And as I said, you don't have to resort to medication, just listen to the episode. But jokes aside, you know, Given the fact that licensing is always a big question, especially when it comes down to deployment at large corporation uh, corporations, why did you choose this particular license? Can you comment on this? As in, why did you go for a copyleft license rather than sticking with the uh, rather stick rather than sticking with the Apache license? So that's something I, I might not know in all detail. Remember when we set up TDF, there were discussions, should we have a copyright assignment, for example, which is something we had back then in the OpenOffice.org times. So whenever you wanted to contribute certain things, you needed to sign a a copyright uh, assignment. And then we decided to not go for that. We had a couple of people discussing that. Why in particular that license was chosen, that is something I actually can't answer um, because I, I'm not fully in the know here. Um, that was a part of the bootstrapping that we did in the beginning and there were lots of essential questions like which license, which um, uh, or should we have a, a, a copyright um a transfer, uh, copyright assignment, those kind of things. And there were lots of people discussing on that in, in, in various groups and the outcome for us that the, the best for the project would be that one. That's a rather generic answer I I appreciate, but uh, the in, as for the legal details, um, that is probably too long ago for me to remember all the details. But there were certainly a lot of discussions around that, uh, also in the preparing phase of the project, how to handle that best and what are the pros and cons of the, the various options. But you're happy with that decision now as in today? I would say so. So I'm, I think 
that serves us quite well, and at least the feedback I get from all the the contributors who are the ones most affected by that, um, that that was a good choice. So I'm, I'm not aware of any any concerns, any complaints to that. Of course, if you ask five people, you probably get six different recommendations which li license to choose. Usual, so yes. making everybody happy is a challenge, but uh, it's none of the things that people regret. At least I'm, I'm not aware of that now. Okay. Changing tack a little bit, it's probably fair to say that with almost 30 years, maybe 25 years, well, almost 30 years, if I recall correctly, going back to the original code base, that Java at the time was probably a good choice with regards to it runs everywhere because that was a perception in the, in the kind of mid eight, late 90s when the first Star Office version was conceived, let's put it this way. But uh, given the fact that Java, even on an enterprise level, has fallen a little bit by the wayside. Do you think that that there is a certain school of thought in place in the in the community to change this, or are, are people just happy coding away with Java and incorporating new functionality in that legacy language? The um, only about two percent of LibreOffice's source code is Java. It's it's over ninety percent C plus Yeah, this is. Is um, it okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's um yeah. Almost all of the the code is C plus plus now. Um, so the the only remaining bits and pieces that use Java are like a couple of wizards and some things in the database component called base, creatively enough. But um, no, no. The um, development we have at TDF, we have developer mentors who are. C++ experts as well. Um, we're currently looking for developers to join us as well. Um, mm -hmm. But um, yeah, the, the vast, vast, vast majority of the code base is C++. So, I mean, you know, which does relate to your question as well, because some people say, oh, um, you know, C++ is also a bit of an old language now. Um, why aren't you doing things in Rust or Go and other trendy languages as well? But um Yeah, the almost all of the code is C plus plus, and um, there's still plenty of people around who who know that language and like it. And I I, I fully get your point. And Rust and, and GoLang are certainly not languages enough for everybody. But just wondering when did that transition start to happen? Because when I took a look at a serious look at the source code and full disclosure, that goes back at least 15 years. I had the impression that we were mostly looking at a Java code base. But again, I as I said, that's 15 years ago, at least, if not, if not more. Yeah, it, it wasn't ever fully written in Java because um, a bit like we talked about earlier, it started off as Star Office, um, Star Writer, probably written in the assembly language back then. But um, when when this whole sort of, uh, code base started, Java didn't even exist. So um, mm. they, they, in the past, there was more in Java, that's true. And there was an effort to reduce the Java dependencies. So... Um, as I said now, there, there's just a handful of features that require Java. The vast majority of people don't use them anyway. Mm. But it was never the case that the, the suite was written in Java. It, it's always been mostly C++, but Java played a more prominent role in the past, for sure. Well, what are those features that rely on Java? Just out of interest. Um, we can add those to the podcast notes. So okay. I'm <laughs> no, 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 just curious. Really. That's okay. Yeah, but um, like I say, it's... Um, well played. I think a, a couple of accessibility features um, require right. Java, which is obviously super important, but um, many people uh, won't use them. Um, 
and um, some things with the database as well. But we find the vast majority of people who don't even have Java installed use LibreOffice this just fine. And speaking of which, speaking of the database, whenever I install LibreOffice on a, on a brand new machine, uh, this wizard pops up and talks about databases. Maybe you can shed some, you can shed some light on this. Why does the software suite rely on the database? Why does it rely on a database? And that seems to be yeah cross component. It, it doesn't matter if if you're talking about Impress Writer and Draw and what have you. And these would be LibreOffice components. Impress is a counterpart to something called PowerPoint, as it is known in the Microsoft world. Writer, of course, would be comparable to Microsoft Word, if mm -hmm. I'm completely mistaken. Sure. Yeah. And Base is a, a database front end as well, so you can um, hook it up to a uh, back-end database as well, create nice forms and uh, bits and pieces to interact with databases as well. So, um Uh, yeah, you could map it to a, a certain um, product from a certain big company in Redmond that begins with A. Okay. But that has been always a integral of the overall architecture, never mind the component you choose, whether it's Rider, whether it's Impress or something else. Um, yeah, but they, there's, there's a huge amount of shared code between the different components in LibreOffice, so um, you, you can't just install one piece of it. Um, it wouldn't okay. really make much sense. So um, if you if you if you've got LibreOffice Writer, then you've already got a, a huge amount of like um, rendering and file parsing engine in there as well. So um, mm. uh, every LibreOffice installation includes all the components because it's just the most sensible way to do it. Mm. And a fun fact, I use LibreOffice all over the place from Python automatic workflow right up to some other stuff that, that probably will bore the listeners to tears. So I won't go really go into the details. But if I take but if I take a close look, for example, I mean you model that software very close to something called Microsoft Office, because if I take a close look at the underlying basic dialect, it reminds me a lot of The original stuff that I used to work in about 40 years ago when I started out with Microsoft Office back in the back in the dark days, because it's pretty comprehensive, and apparently, if you have a an Office document, you, I think I I never tried it, so this is this is just a kind of suspicion that I have, an assumption. You can t literally take the basic code that is in the macros and simply put it into LibreOffice, and chances are it may work. Chances are it may work is, is how you've, um, you've you've put it very well there, hedging it a bit. Yeah, um, you know this all goes back um, a very long time to basic dialects as well. It's the basic programming language. So there's Visual Basic applications and Star Basic that was in Star Office and then Open Office and now LibreOffice as well. And there's a lot of compatibility between them, but uh, there are also some differences as well. It, it's important to know that LibreOffice isn't just some um, copy of another famous Office suite. That That's not motivation. That doesn't motivate um, contributors um, to just make a copy of something something else. Obviously, the software has to be accessible to people coming from other office suites as well, so there will be similarities. But, um, you know, LibreOffice should do its own thing, have its own personality, have its own setup, have its own um, menu structure and organization as well, have its own basic dialect. 
um, mm. instead of just being a, a, a copy and paste clone of, of something else. So um, that's something we, we really, really stress. And sometimes people come to us and say, well, you know, I've learned to do this in Microsoft Office. Why can't I do it the same in LibreOffice? And we say, well, we're not the same application. You know, maybe Microsoft's way is the wrong way and you have to learn a little bit to do it our way. And in the end, that's actually better. Okay, interesting. And maybe also to add, I think one of the the big advantages is the the flexibility. So you're talking, for example, about the user interface. We these days cover various options to to approach that, so people have a choice. Or if you think uh, at the platforms uh, that are supported, there's a is a huge choice. And also in terms of languages, I often get reports that LibreOffice is available in languages or specific dialects that are maybe not economically feasible to be translated, but that helps people, uh, as we call it, to to um, bridge the digital gap. To, to overcome the digital divide that people can actually participate in, in their native language, that you have localization of the user interface, of the help system, the online help. Uh, so the, there's a lot of flexibility that you might not find elsewhere. And that is indeed to, to amplify what um, Mike was saying, the, the motivation for people to contribute. Of course, having that impact is, um, is a very big one. Which is interesting because if I take a look at the installer, I think the language that is missing is Klingon. But apart from that, it's pretty comprehensive. Klingon, um, Klingon support was added yeah, okay. recently. Was um, it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a Klingon. Um, um, the facilities in the code base have been added to support Klingon. But as usual, now we need some people to step up and actually. Um, uh, implemented, start work on the translation. So if I knew any Klingon, I could actually ask all of the Klingon-speaking listeners of, of this podcast. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> to, just, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just wondering, how many pull requests did you receive from native speakers? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but from faraway planets. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. indeed, indeed. Strange IP addresses that we couldn't GOIP, now, yeah. Mike, back to much more serious issues. I mean, given the fact that probably... Uh, Telugu and some other South, South Indian dialects or languages, rather, don't feature high up the list of languages that Mr. Effenberg nor Mr. Saunders speak. You must rely on a horde, if not an army of volunteers, to chip in at, at least from this angle, if not way more. Totally, yeah. The um, the, the number of uh, volunteers we have in the localization projects is, is amazing. Hundreds and hundreds of people across the world. Um, doing really, really awesome stuff. And because, yeah, it's it's not something that we can do at TDF. We are only 14 people, as Florian mentioned. We often say we are not the developer of LibreOffice. Yeah, we are, we are part of it and we are getting a couple of developers on board. But um, the vast majority of work being done on LibreOffice is volunteers, is the ecosystem as well. So it's not that TDF develops LibreOffice, TDF um, coordinates the community and the, it makes the infrastructure work and events and stuff. But the vast majority of work is done by other people. And yeah, translations um, are, are huge. And often people will organize their own events. Like the in Nepal, they do um, uh, localization fests where they translate the user interface and then send us their work, even not just having to organize anything. Wow. So we, lo we love that. Yeah. Um, so we, with our limited <laughs> languages we have in the team, um, it's it's a huge help um, when people make the software available. And we, it's not just nice, you know, Klingon, Klingon support is, is, is a bit of fun and games, but we see it as well when um, we see LibreOffice being translated into um, 
lesser known languages in like South America and Africa. And then we, we hear from communities there who are doing um, computer, giving computing courses to children because they can then they can actually use the software in their own language as well. So it's not just to have, but it, it does uh, genuinely make a difference to people, especially in areas where the big companies just ignore them because there's no money. They don't, they just um, don't see any monetary benefit. And speaking of the community, just wondering, do you have any idea? I mean, you probably know the majority of the core devs as the core developers, but do you have any idea how large the community really is that contributes to not just the code base, but also translations, just quality assurance and all the rest of it? Any idea? Yeah, I mean, um, it's you can you can make some pretty um, broad ranges for this. You, we can say anywhere between two hundred and four hundred people, um, but it's you have people doing like drive-by patches. Yeah, <laughs> somebody comes along and says, "Oh, I need to fix this." Um, they they send us a patch, they send us an update, they send us a translation, and then we don't see them again. Other people stay around for years and have to come in and out of the project and the community they're there for a few months then they're away again so um it's a bit hard to say but uh, one statistic we can use is the number of members of the document foundation so everybody who contributes to libreoffice and the document liberation project which we should mention at some point um they can apply to become a member of the board of trustees of the document foundation so they can vote for our uh, board of directors and stuff and we, i think at the moment it's 200 and 10 or 220 florian might be able to correct me with that but that number also reflects how many people are active in the community so at least 200 people doing a lot of work on LibreOffice, and then you could say 400 500 when you include people who are occasionally here and there doing bits and pieces in different projects that's Indeed. significant it's quite hard to, to track that. Of course, if you have somebody uh, contributing to a repository, you can track that. And of course, there's a bit of fluctuation. As Mike says, there are drive-by comments and then, then people vanish again. Um, then you have um, people contributing where it's much harder to, to quantify, to, to get metrics. Like if you have people going out helping to install LibreOffice, that is something we don't necessarily even hear about or um, community activities, especially when it's not uh, in Europe. So we, we might not know those people, um, but it's, it's further away. Like the, the Asian community is doing a great job. And each year when we work on our annual report, we get uh, lots of insight what is happening there that we, um, due to, you know, language barriers is, is a thing, obviously, that um, it, it's harder to communicate than that we learn less or more, um, not uh, regularly, but like, once a year, we get really a lot of, of overview on, on what is going on, and there's a lot of contributions. So um, really having metrics, if if you want metrics, we do have a so-called dashboard where we try to quantify what we can, like what do people commit to the code base? What do they publish in the wiki? What do they send on a mailing list? But there's a lot of things that is, is much harder to measure. So uh, indeed, giving an accurate number how large the community is is hard to say, but what I can say is that it's our greatest asset. Of course, you need money, you need the nations to um, have infrastructure running, to do things, to run events, to pay for travels when people attend a conference. But I'd say the greatest asset that we have is people contributing their talent and their time to the project because this is something, if they do it really um, 
by heart, if they, they really like what they do, if they're passionate about that, that is something you, you can't pay with any money in the world. So that's really one of the greatest assets that we have in the project. Uh, for sure, the community is obviously the most important part there. Um, how, however, do you have any sort of corporate sponsorship, as in um, organizations that contribute to LibreOffice as well? Yeah, um, yeah. There, there is a, a whole ecosystem around um, LibreOffice as well. So, um, and a large portion, like I think in the, the most recent release, sixty percent of the source code commits came from companies in the LibreOffice ecosystem uh, as well. So, a lot of work by volunteers, but um, it's a bit like in the in the Linux world anyway. Yeah, you you have a lot of um, yeah. distributions made by um, communities, and then LTS versions. Um, you know, made by bigger companies as well. And we have the same thing. So um, if you want to get LibreOffice from us, that's great. And it will always be available for free for everybody. But if you're a really big company and you want to roll out LibreOffice on 50,000 computers or in an organization, then you should probably go to the ecosystem because they can give you long-term support versions, custom features, custom bug fixes, things that we as a small uh, non-profit independent um foundation we can't provide so the ecosystem is there doing great work contributing a lot of features um and so we can focus on on doing the community things right so you you have the the well let's say commercial support organizations that help you uh, develop the product as well right because sure it's quite a large code base i can imagine with um the amount of <laughs> features you have in there and the amount of sub sub let's say the the various parts of it um so is it the case that say um yeah your your commercial support uh, ecosystem is is also contributing to uh the product totally yeah, yeah. Big because of the nature of the license as well yeah so um they they go on to make their um libre we call it LibreOffice technology so they're they're using the LibreOffice code base adding their own benefits on top, like long-term support and, um, as I mentioned, custom um, bug fixing and things. But it all rolls back into the code base because of the license. So it's a good kind of symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You you mentioned uh, uh, large organizations with 50,000 computers a moment ago. Do you have a uh, a kind of an idea about the user base of LibreOffice in in general? Is is it more than just you know, your standard um, home office uh, <laughs> Linux user? We we have a page on our wiki, which again, we can add to uh-huh. the, the podcast Excellent. notes, um, showing major migrations to LibreOffice. So like the French, um, uh, sorry, the, yeah, the, the French police, um, the Italian military, um, various organizations and, and schools in Germany. Um, there, there was a, a lot of really, really big users of LibreOffice. Often um, they don't talk about it in public as well. So we suspect there were many more um, uh, large-scale users of LibreOffice. And then when we count in a bunch of other things as well, obviously we don't track users. We're very privacy-centric. But when we look at like our um, download um, statistics, and the the size of the market, and and put a bunch of other things together. We estimate around two hundred million users. Wow, that's uh, significant. <laughs> um, okay, that's, so I mean, clearly, uh, most of us uh, in um, let's say uh, in, in our employment are used to, to using our <laughs> um, our Microsoft products. Uh, 
do you see a, do you see a big shift in that direction from from commercial organizations as well or is um, it mainly in the public domain so far that it's being adopted we 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 see more and more as, as companies become um more cautious about their data as well with everything going into the cloud and mm. You know, it reminds me of, I think it's the Free Software Foundation's famous statement. Yeah, there's no such thing as the cloud, but only other people's computers. And, (laughs) um, of course, there are practical, um, there are benefits to to doing things so-called in the cloud as well. But um, we we do see this uh, a lot more and more um, in Germany as well. Um, German government departments and local state departments questioning the use of Microsoft Office. It's the same, where is our data yeah, what is actually happening? How much control do we actually have? So um, free software fans, the kind of people listening to this podcast, we've all known this for a long, long uh, time. Um, and, you know, um, there's no denying that a lot of people use LibreOffice because it's free as in zero cost as well. Um, that's that's a, a nice handy benefit. But um, as more and more goes online, as, as there's more AI wrapped into to tools as well now. And, and you know, do you want your office suite questioning the way you're writing and suggesting, telling you that you um, you, you should write things in different ways? We, we see people then saying, no, hang on a minute. Just you can't, you can't turn tool. these things off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, yeah, just, yeah, just give me a tool that, that does my work on my own computer with my own control. Uh, and, and we see that spilling over a bit into, into corporate users as well. Okay, nice. I mean, yeah, clearly there is a benefit in terms of collaboration or of using those cloud product commercial offerings. Is that something that you are thinking about with LibreOffice at all? Yeah, well, we do have um, LibreOffice online. There is a web-based version of the suite, so um, you can uh, you, you can set it up so that you install it on a server and then you can access. Um, uh, you can work collaboratively on, collaboratively on documents in a web browser. Um, a, the huge amount of work on that has, was done by uh, a company in the ecosystem. So um, they're um, promoting that as well. Um, so we're um, mostly focusing on the desktop um, application at the moment. Um, but, you know, everything's um, always open to change. If we get more um, people helping out to, to keep um, LibreOffice Online going from our side, that would be great as well. Um, so yeah, it's all about when you're a, a small foundation like us, it's all about managing resources and we try and encourage people to join in and, and work on the things they want to work on, but ultimately it's, it's up to the volunteers what they do. Okay. Uh, do you not, as a, let's say, uh, managers of the project set some kind of direction or, um, some guidelines around that, or is that purely all community driven? Oh sure. I mean, we can um, we we can tender out some um, uh, things to do, um, and inside it's not an official body of the Document Foundation, but we have the Engineering Steering Committee, which is a bunch of like the most technical people, developers, uh, who then decide what features are we going to include, where is the the direction going in the next few releases. But um, we tend to avoid making huge roadmaps where we say we will have this in two years and this in two years because, you know, it's 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 open source project. It's um, the, it, it, it goes, you know, moves like a, a flock of birds as well. So um, we, we can say we want to focus on some things. We're going to focus more on accessibility. We're looking for developers to join TDF um, to work on accessibility and improve language support as well. So there are some 
things where we can say we want to add extra focus on onto this, but um, ultimately it's do as decide, as they say. That has been more than insightful. And before we wrap this up, where do you see this whole thing going? You already mentioned France and especially the public sector picking up this left, right and center. And I think some Scandinavian country also committed at least part of the public service to moving away from, from Redmond software and going the open source route. And if anybody's listening from any deciding people in said Scandinavian government or public sector <laughs> organization, full marks to you because that's the way to go. So uh, back to my original question, what's ahead for, for LibreOffice and the GDF? Um, Florian, do you want to say some thoughts? Yes, happy to. So I want to talk less about the, the software. I want to talk a bit about the community. So I think, um, of course, I mean, in, in these times, especially that, that we are facing in the world, that there might be things that are much more important than than, than software than, than IT. That, that that's for sure. But then um, we see that with a lot of mentoring programs that we are doing, um, we try to also attract younger people who might have um, the career still ahead to have a look in, into that field to uh, discover their skills because that's how many of us came to the project. It was the same for me. I was looking around and um, I was trusted with tasks I've, I've never done before and um, maybe in a regular corporation could not have tried. And um, in an open source project, things are much different. And that helped me to look into areas, um, rule out certain areas, discover other skills. And uh, at least one of the goals that I have is apart from, of course, having a great software and uh, letting things grow and, and have a stable foundation is um, to fascinate more people about what we do, um, because it's not just about coding. You can also develop skills in, in design and in graphics, in, in localization and testing. So as broad as the user base for LibreOffice is, as broad are the options to engage yourself. It's not all just technical. There are many, many other things. And um, I think one of the things that's ahead for us that, that we should look into, that we should uh, embrace is to get more people in, to become more diverse, to uh, reach out uh, to, to other communities. For example, having a conference um, not only in Europe, but on a different continent is one of those things. So working with the community, making it stronger, getting new contributors in and also helping them to discover their, their very own skills and see what they're good at. Let, let them fail, let them learn from that, let them grow into other roles and discover other skills. I think that's one of the things that's, that's ahead and with a growing community. Of course, we have more people who can can uh, support. So apart from the software and the foundation, that's one of the main things for me that, that let's say, the social part, the, the, the part between the humans that um, will grow and, and will improve and will bring many exciting moments to us. Clearly, the, the, the main thing about open source software right? is just people to working together on a common goal, for sure. Mike, anything to add before we close off the show? You know what 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 we're doing here is an office suite. It may not sound like the most trendiest, hip hop sexiest thing out there. Um, you know, I, I oh, look Mike, back at, it's yeah. still widely it used surely, every day, right? <laughs> exactly, it surely is. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, I look on Hacker News every day, and I see people, you know, write writing, um, creating uh, AI. Um, web 4.0 dynamic um, visualizer plugins in a language that's only existed for 35 seconds and like so um, but 
yeah, um, but at the end of the day, an office suite is an incredibly useful tool. Anybody who gets involved and helps out can make a difference to millions of users. So, you know, we had a, a guy a couple of years ago who updated the user interface, made did some great changes to the user interface. Those have gone out now to millions, tens of millions of users. So, um, and, you know, I think a bit like Firefox, to some extent, LibreOffice is a good starting point to get people into free software. You can't switch everybody over to Linux just like that. Um, but, you know, um, just like you can give somebody a, a, a free software web browser and they can start using it and, and gradually move over, I think LibreOffice is a good tool, to a good way to get people into the, the whole idea of free software and the community behind it as well. Um, and then hopefully they'll stay around as well. Very, very much so indeed in terms of very interesting closing remarks. So yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to say you're spot on, like Thunderbird, like Firefox. You're looking at one of the cornerstones that is used by millions of people every single day. Yes, and I'm one of them. As a matter of fact, we use Nextcloud to coordinate the podcast and I think it's called Collabora, if I'm completely mistaken. Mm -hmm. Is, is part of any Nextcloud installation that I do. And Collabora, of course, standing for LibreOffice Online in terms of this is what Martin and myself use for collaborative working on LibreOffice documents. That's fantastic. Yeah. We have a couple of... I'm, I'm almost tempted to say control questions, but they're not. We have Poxes of the Week. Essentially, these are picks of the week, as in Poxes, that we discuss our guests in terms of what they have come across worth mentioning over the last couple of weeks, maybe months. And normally Martin discusses Amish porn, <laughs> sorry, adult education websites. I normally basically mention books or movies or it's, maybe it's the other way around. Are you Martin? I can't even remember. It doesn't matter. Okay, but it, the point that I'm trying to oh, make is basically isn't it? <laughs> exactly if you can think of anything that is worth mentioning, now is the time in terms of that you have come across recently worth mentioning on on our podcast. Well, my find of the fortnight, if we, if we thank you, if we, yes, if, if we can still use that, um, yeah, absolutely. If, um, apologies uh, to Graham, Andrew, and Ben um, for bringing that up back, but um, uh, my my find of the fortnight is that the for me the modern version of turn it off and turn it back on again to get something working is to disable IPv6. I was having. <laughs> really really I was having problems with Thunderbird and weird weird problems like random things just not really working and very hard to recreate very hard to um, reproduce and I looked around and they thought that these aren't Thunderbird problems because yeah, Thunderbird's also a big suite and, and will have its own issues. But um, And then um, one of my colleagues at TDF, funnily enough, <laughs> suggested to me, um, just try turning off uh, IPv6. And I, I disabled that inside Thunderbird and everything worked smoothly. And I think it, I just have a really, really crappy router, like one of the ones supplied by the ISP. Um, so it's probably the router that's at fault. But ever since I decided, it's just been like floating in in bliss and i know we're running out of ipv4 addresses and everything but that that was my find of the fortnight anyway like if it's any consolation we have been doing this for the last what 10 years maybe maybe six or seven i can't remember but when i was working at verizon that happens to be one of the biggest isps on the planet there was already talk about running alone on, on, on ipv4s 
And if I take a look at the current situation, it still works. So it hasn't broken yet. Over to you, Florian. So l let me follow up on the topic of email, as you were mentioning, the Thunderbird. So I, I can fully support the problem with ISP-supplied routers. They are very creative solutions. I'm not going to mention any names, but we have that. Um, but um, maybe not a new discovery. What what strikes me more and more, I'm, I'm definitely an email kind of person. I mean, I, I one of my, let's say, hobbies is to, to build mail servers. I'm really deep into that. So I'm attached to the topic. But um, it was already back in the day when CBIT was still a thing, and that's like years ago, uh, that people told me that um, their kids don't use email anymore. They don't have an email address. So when they sign up somewhere, they, they can't. And I'm... I'm Maybe I'm just getting old, which I may, but um, I'm getting quite worried um, about, we talked a lot about where is your data and who hosts your data, that these days more and more is not in, in email, which is, if you want to say so, one of the largest federated networks that we know based on open standards, and that we are moving to all those closed platforms, all those closed networks, and the knowledge then is lost. That is a bit um, worrying to me. If you okay. if you have stuff in in, in, in open source and open standards, that that is great. But if you dump it into some random social network, maybe you've seen it with Twitter lately, where maybe there's a lot of of wisdom, not so much wisdom, that it gets lost. Um, that is that is quite worrying to me. And in in terms of email, even that field is getting bad because we see similar patterns by some companies. You have a few really really large providers dominating the market. Again, not mentioning any names, but anyone in the field might might know that. And um, it's becoming actually more and more problem for private people or, or smaller operators to run something because those big players just push through their standards or non-standards and that that is worrying because you know that that open communication on open standards in some fields is fading out in others like looking at, at uh, matrix for example that has a, a massive booster mastodon um is growing but it's a bit worrying to me i must say so just to to stick with the email topic that um developments here follow similar patterns that we see also in other areas we should thank you for the hint that was yeah that was more than insightful and i couldn't agree more but you see florian the good news is for example uh, the major important uh, mailing list like the little current mailing list i reckon won't go away anytime soon so i reckon uh, most of the big open source projects are still run on email on, on mailing lists i suppose and the BSDs and the Linux kernel are probably the, the, the four best examples for this. We had, the, we had the BSD people on a couple of episodes back, and they all use mails. Yeah, or other open tools. I mean, we have the same at, in our project looking, moving to um, this course, but that's then still open. We try to have email gateways. So still with this, whatever platform you have, it's open, it's accessible. Uh, and and um, the development that this is not uh, everywhere, like people move to WhatsApp groups and whatnot, that is a bit worrying. <laughs> yes. And now probably is the time before Martin can mention his box to plug actually our Mastodon presence. <laughs> yes, we are on Mastodon. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought you were going to say our email, email mailing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our, our email address is as usual feedback at linuxinlaws.eu, but we're also on Mastodon. And you can find us actually at linux underscore inlaws if you want to send us a message or if you want to kind of read our tweets. This is the uh, 
well, handle to subscribe to. Or follow, rather, to use Mastodon terms. And Martin, over to you. Ah, Pox, yes. Uh, my Pox of the Week is something called Alaska Daily, which is a series about a newspaper in Alaska investigating local issues, which is quite interesting because clearly Alaska is part of America, but it's also somewhat remote, so quite worth a watch. And it's got uh, one of my favorite actresses in it as well. So. Alaska? I thought there was something called Bait Alaska, and that's a favorite dessert in Ireland. That's a dessert, yes, yes. <laughs> but that has nothing to do with it. With, with no, the, it's, it's nothing series. to okay. do with it. Yeah. Now, actually, funny enough, my pick of the of the week, or rather the fortnight, it's baked or Alaska, is it? <laughs> no, no, it's no funny. Oh, no, funny, what a funny, no, no, funny. It's not actually. It's a car. It's a. Um, it's also a TV series called Happy. It's but it's way on the dark side. So if you are a minor under the age of thirty-five, this is certainly not for you. Or ensure that you get parental supervision or guidance if you watch this. So, just in case. I think there are two seasons or something like this, or maybe even more, I can't even remember. But if you're into dark humor, slightly on the absurd side, this is a um, TV series not to watch. Uh, you will find it on your favorite streaming service. I think it was The Rage about four years ago. So check it out on Netflix or wherever you get the streams from. And with that, Mike... And Florian, thank you much for, for being here. It was a pleasure. Mm, thank you very much. And we hope to Glad have to you soon this, and, and we hope to have you back at some stage for more insights into LibreOffice and the TDF. Thanks for inviting us. It was a pleasure. Yep. Thank and, you. Yep. Happy to be here. Martin, did you actually know Floss Weekly apparently is no longer? I did, I did. Someone told me recently. <laughs> but, uh, what about you? Well, full disclosure, Leo, if you're listening, I'm sure you are. We made that offer long, long, long time ago, as in 20, what was it, 2027, oh. right? With the flux capacitor <laughs> and stuff. Uh, that you actually, I wouldn't say goodbye, links in loss, but the hostile takeover was futile to use Borg terms now. Hmm. But given the fact that, and we're recording this, people uh, in. Late of late December 2023, apparently, Floss Weekly has fallen by the wayside due to funding problems. Leo, if you're still listening, you could have reached out. What do you mean? We don't have any funding. Oh, <laughs> Get a reach out if he wants to, but it's not going to help his funding problem. Oh, Martin, you see, if it comes mm. down to Floss Weekly, I'm sure we could have pulled some strings. Uh, yeah, you know there's, there's always um, yeah. Well, there's always the cartels, right? <laughs> yes, indeed, Italian connection. <laughs> <laughs> or the Mexican one, anyway. So, mm. Leo, if you're still interested, simply send a message, and we we'll take it from there, I suppose. But no jokes aside, people. If to say that Floss Weekly was just an inspiration for something called Linux in-laws would be a mild understatement. Go to the website, check it out. Apparently, all of the recordings are still in the back catalog of Floss Weekly. Mm. And of course, there are ties between our ancestors, as in Linux outlaws, and Linux and Floss Weekly as well. So that's another yep. tie to be aware of. Anything you want to add, Martin? No, it's indeed a. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, whether you like the format or not is a different question, but it's. Um, they do uh, provide some some good content on occasion, so 
they did. Yeah, for sure. They did, because they're, I think, of the past. And I reckon, given their tenure, I think we're looking at 20 years or something. Mm. Yep. No, Another very, inspiration, I suppose. Various different uh, presenters and things. But yeah. uh, 20 years old, that seems a bit optimistic given our ages. So. <laughs> Martin Hope dies last. You are still 62. I'm about 54, <laughs> feeling 37. So, so that, <laughs> there's room to grow, I suppose. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Indeed. But yeah, we are not here to discuss uh, the future of <laughs> of our, our dying ages. Yeah, indeed. So, well, I yeah. thought we could, but anyway, that's probably another topic for another episode. Indeed. People, thanks for listening. This is the Linux in-laws. You come for the knowledge. But stay for the madness. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Type attribution, share like. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margaret, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the dark side. You find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Shimando a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts.